right, turn in your Bibles, if you would, to the book of Matthew. If you need a Bible, you can raise your hand, and one of our ushers will give you one to use for today. Matthew chapter 15. Starting in verse 21. Matthew chapter 15, starting in verse 21. And we are going to read through chapter 16, verse 12. Matthew 15, verse 21. Are you there? All right, Cindy's there. Is anybody else there? All right, a couple of you. Matthew 15, verse 21. And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word, and his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she is crying out after us. He answered, I was only sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, It is not right to take children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She said, Yes, Lord, but even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done as you desire. And her daughter was instantly healed. Jesus went on from there and walked beside the Sea of Galilee. And he went up on the mountain and sat down there. And great crowds came to him, bringing with him the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others. And they put him at his feet, and he healed them. So that the crowd wondered when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled, healthy, the lame, walking in the blind, seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. Then Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on on the crowd because they have, have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And I am unwilling to send them away hungry, lest they faint on the way. And the disciples said to him, Where are we to get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed so great a, cr- uh, so great a crowd? And Jesus said to them, How many loaves do you have? They said, Seven, and a few small fish. And directing the crowd to sit down on the ground, he took the seven loaves and the fish, and having given thanks, he broke them and, s- and gave them to, his, to the disciples, And the disciples gave them to the crowds, and they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up seven baskets full of the broken pieces left over. Those who ate were 4,000 men besides women and children. And after sending away the crowds, he got into the boat and went into the region of Megadon. The Pharisees and Sadducees came to test him. They asked him to show them a sign from heaven. He answered them. When it is evening, you say it will be a fair weather, for the sky is red, and in the morning it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the the appearance of the sky, but you can't interpret the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for signs, but no sign will be given to, to it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. When the disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring any bread. Jesus said to them, Watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. 
And they begin discussing it among themselves, saying, we brought no bread. But Jesus, aware of this, said, oh, you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not perceive, do you not remember the five loaves and the 5,000 and how many baskets you gathered? Or the seven loaves for for the 4,000 and how many baskets you gathered? How is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Let's pray and ask God to help us this morning. Father, we do ask you to do just that. Speak to us. God, we pray that the Holy Spirit would open our eyes to the truth that is in this text, that you might break us, that you might heal us. Show us, God, the fact that we are the outsider who has been brought inside because of the grace of Jesus Christ. Help me as I speak. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Last night, I attended with my wife a wedding. Jasmine Thompson, member of our church, married a young man named Travis. And it was a beautiful ceremony. At the, during the reception, I had the privilege of sitting with Jasmine's family members. And I sat right next to Aunt Ethel, Jasmine's great aunt. She's, I believe, 87. And I uh, had a wonderful conversation with her the entire time. She told me this story. So, so Aunt Ethel is from, originally from North Carolina. And when she was in 10th grade, the year was 1951, she was living in Kinston, North Carolina. I almost said Jamaica. Kinston, (laughs) not Kingston, Kinston, North Carolina, a small, in 1951, extremely segregated town. And she was in 10th grade at Adkin High School, which was the school for African Americans. She talked about the extreme segregation and racism that she experienced in that little town. Uh, Because it was so segregated, she said, I never saw white people. The only time I ever saw white people was when when we went downtown to go clothes shopping. But we would only go to three stores because there were only three stores out of all the stores downtown that would allow us to try on the clothes that we might buy. Well, in in her 10th grade year in 1951, there was a protest, a peaceful protest that she took part in. All of the students from Adkin High School walked out of school and walked down Main Street and had a peaceful protest. The issue was the fact that they, while they had a library, by the way, white school, black school, right, segregation, white library, black library. Well, they had a library. The white library had all of the good books, had all, quote-unquote, of the books, had uh, uh, the new books, books that they need. The black library received hand-me-down books. She said all of our books, books were torn up by the white kids. <laughs> Let's give them, give them down to Adkin High School. 
So the class, the entire school, led by the, uh, the graduating class in 1952, protested. And she said it's, uh, this, this protest actually, two weeks later, got them the books that they needed. And it, it is uh, going to be highlighted in the new uh, Smithsonian African American Museum in D.C. Pretty cool, isn't it? But I asked her, I said, or she said, before I asked her this question, she, sa she said, you know what was crazy? Was those people that were so racist back then were, were in the church. They had Bibles in their hands. Now, she's a Christian, so I asked her, I said, did that ever hurt your faith? You know, to, be, to experience such racism and oppression from people who claim to be Christians. And she quickly, in so many words, she said, no, they were wrong. They didn't understand the Bible. And she said, God does not discriminate. You know, we as human beings, whether it's over race or, or class or location or language, we as human beings are prone to say we are the insiders here and there are outsiders over there. And whether we intellectually agree with it or not, practically we say they're lesser than us. They're the outcast. We do this all the time. I think of myself as a, as a child. When I was a kid, I had a, a, a friend named John, and my neighbor's name was Stephen, who was also my friend. John came over to my house one time, and for some reason, Stephen just hated John. And uh, when John was hanging out, we were in our backyard, Stephen came over and just started fighting John, like out of nowhere, and punched him in the eye, ran home. I remember sitting in the kitchen there with John. He's got this big black eye, and he's holding ice on it. And we're bad-mouthing Stephen. I'm like, I can't believe he's such a jerk. I will never hang out with that guy again. I hate Stephen. Now, two weeks later, when I was hanging out with Stephen, all right, <laughs> um, driving in the car with his grandmother, we saw John. And Stephen's grandmother, who also hated John for some reason, Stephen, Stephen's grandmother uh, said, oh, Stephen, look, there's John. And John said, I, or, uh, Stephen said, I hate him. And Stephen's grandmother said, he's such a expletive. I won't say it since I'm right here. He's such an expletive. And I said, I know, he's such an expletive. I repeated what she said. And I knew that he wasn't that, but I wanted in that moment to be on the inside. And I enjoyed putting John on the outside because in that moment it made me, made me feel really good about myself. There is something depraved about me, even... even I mean, as a child, sin that had so struck my core to want to ostracize someone, throw them on the out, say that they're an outcast so that I might be found as uh, an, an insider. Why do we do that? You guys know what I'm talking You remember high school? You get with these group of friends and you talk bad about these group of friends then you flip-flop and now you're talking bad about the same people you were just talking to? 
it's, it's our sin nature, and it goes back to the core of who we are, and this is exactly what Jesus is going after today. I want to look at this text, and I want to talk to you today on this topic, Savior of the Outcast. Jesus is the Savior of the outcast, and whenever we throw someone on the outside, they are the outcast. I want you to remember, Jesus is the Savior of the the outcast. Now, I don't know if you noticed, but as we were reading this text, you might have felt like this was like a random collection of scenes. We go from this Canaanite woman who's asking Jesus to heal her daughter, and now he's healing people, and then he's feeding 4,000. We're thinking, wait a second, isn't this a repeat? I thought we, he just fed 5,000. Like, what's going on here? And then now he's, he's talking to the Pharisees, and he's, he's getting on to them because they seek a sign. He's like, don't seek signs. You don't have any faith. And then he's talking to his disciples about leaven and bread, and, oh, you guys don't even get it. I'm just talking about the Pharisees' teaching. Beware of that. Like, what, what's going on here? Well, I want you to see a common thread through all of these scenes. And that is this. That is, it is that Jesus is the Savior of the outcast. Let me break it down for you a little bit. Let's start with chapter 16, verses 1 through 4. There, Jesus is talking to the Pharisees. And the Pharisees are demanding what? They're demanding a sign, correct? You guys tracking with me? They're demanding a sign. And Jesus says, I'm not going to give you a sign. You lack faith. That's your problem. And then the next scene, he's talking to his disciples. And, and they are wondering about bread. We don't have any bread. And, and Jesus says, beware of the, the leaven of the Pharisees. And, and they have no clue what he's talking about. What he's talking about is beware of the teaching of the Pharisees. What's the teaching of the Pharisees? The teaching of the Pharisees is that we are assumed to be okay because we're on the inside. All right? Beware of that kind of teaching, he says. And he says, don't you remember the, 5, 000, the feeding of the 5,000 and the feeding of four, the 4,000? And don't you remember how many baskets, the number of baskets were left over? He's drawing our attention to the number of baskets left over after the feeding of the 5,000 and the feeding of the 4,000. Why? Why does Jesus want us to keep in mind the number of baskets that were left over? Quick review, little quiz. Feeding of the 5,000 a couple weeks ago, how many baskets were left over? Twelve. If you just caught it from this text, how many baskets are left over from the feeding of the 4,000? Seven. Twelve. Twelve. The number of the tribes of Israel. Twelve is a number that often represents Israel in the scriptures. Seven. Seven is a universal number. Seven represents the entire globe. What Jesus, I believe, is getting at here is that you're missing it. Beware of the teaching of the Pharisees who demand a sign, who lack faith, who just simply assume that they are good to go because they're part of Israel. Beware of that kind of teaching because God is not just simply about the elite, but he's about all people. Now, let me continue breaking this down for you because I can tell that some of you are confused right now. You're looking at me with, with this look of confusion, <laughs> and I understand. It's okay. I, I uh, took some pictures of my map, my study map for you. Let me, let me break down what's going on here contextually so you can see what I'm talking about. 
So I took some pictures of my nap, my map with notes on it for you to fully understand um, what you need to know about something about the people as well as something about the geography of Jesus' day. So uh, most of Jesus' ministry has been taking place where? Galilee. You see Galilee on the map right there? Most of his ministry has been taking place right there in Galilee. So far in Galilee, we have seen the lame walk, the blind see, the crippled are healed, the mute speak, all happening in Galilee. Jesus fed the 5,000 in Galilee. Now, what's significant about all of this stuff taking place in Galilee? Well, it's that Galilee is filled with, in their day, culturally, insiders. Galilee is filled with those who are seen as the elite. Now, just northwest of Galilee is a region known as Tyre and Sidon. We see that right up there. Tyre and Sidon was a notorious area, cities which were believed to be condemned. So in scene one, we see Jesus leaves Galilee and he goes to Tyre and Sidon. This means that Jesus leaves the insiders and he went where? To the, the outsiders. Now after this, in verse 29, Jesus is walking beside the Sea of Galilee. Now, which side of the Sea of Galilee is he walking on? This is very important. All right, so this is, you might be getting a little bored, but hang with me for just a moment here because, because this matters. Jesus goes to the east side of Galilee. Now, we know this because uh, uh, in verse 39, uh, it ends by saying that he gets into a boat and he sails to Magadan, which is on the west side of the Sea of Galilee. Why does this side of Galilee matter? Well, it's because the east side is also a Gentile area. So again, he's with who? Thank you. He's with outsiders. So in scene one, he heals a Canaanite woman. And then in scene two, we see that he heals, or he, he heals and, and he feeds 4,000. All happening among who? Say it one more time. Among the outsiders. Listen, we are prone to push people to the outside and to simply say they are the outcast. They're beyond hope. They're beyond redemption. They're beyond grace. I mean, all kinds of people we would consider to be the outsider. Let's just break it down and name a few just for context here. We would consider there to be spiritual outsiders, meaning atheists or Muslims, people who don't understand the gospel. We just don't think they're ever going to believe the gospel. I'm not even going to try to invite them. I'm not, I'm not even going to try to share the gospel with them. They are an outcast or physical outsiders, meaning those who have physical issues, maybe drug addiction, emotional outsiders, those who have mental illness or suicidal, those who uh, are uh, 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 societal outsiders, those, those who we would look down on, uh, prostitutes or, or drug dealers or hustlers, gangbangers, they're societal outcasts. Or minority groups, language groups, refugees, they are the outcasts, the outsiders. Geographical outsiders, 
those who are not in our immediate context, neighborhood, city, those who live in other parts of the world where, where we, we, we can't see them. If we can't see them, we don't have to worry about them. Geographical outsiders. We are so prone, just like the people of Jesus' day, to say, we're good, we're okay, we're the insider, and they are just simply the outsider. But friends, Jesus goes to the outcast. He goes to those who are not inside but outside. And since Jesus goes to the outside, what must that mean for us who are the followers of Jesus Christ? Let me give you, let me give you three quick points, application points. What we see in this text, what it means for us. Number one, we are to go to them. We are to go to them we are to go where they are. Let me ask you this question. Who told you about Jesus? Somebody shout out. Who told you about Jesus? What's that? I did? All right. How about somebody other than me? Who told you about Jesus? Parents. Okay, your parents. Who told your parents about Jesus? Do you know? Chuck Price? Who told Chuck Price about Jesus? <laughs> I bet you, though, if you were to keep going back far enough, you would find that somebody told him, then somebody told her, then somebody told him, then somebody told her. And as you keep going back, what you're going to find at some point is that an insider went to an outsider. At some point, someone left their current culture and they went to another culture to share the gospel. Someone crossed a sea. Someone crossed a jungle. Someone crossed a river. Someone crossed a language in order to take the gospel of Jesus Christ to the outsider. This is the story of Christianity. Our story is a story of people who are constantly hearing the gospel, getting up, finding another culture, finding an outsider, and going to them and sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. There's a man named Henry Martin in the 19th century. He was an Anglican. Did very well in school. He had a lot of career opportunities available to him. But this is what Henry Martin prayed one day. He said, here I am, Lord. Send me to the ends of the earth. Send me to the rough, the pagans of the wilderness. Send me from all that is called comfort in earth. Send me even to death itself, if it be but in thy service, in thy kingdom. That's why those of us who are outsiders know the gospel is because somebody went to them. Somebody went. We get up and we go. Let's look at the text in verse 21. What does it say Jesus did? It says Jesus went away from there and he, what does it say? See that word withdrew? Everybody say withdrew. He withdrew. Now that word literally means uh, going from the inside of a room to the outside of a room. The word means he went from the inside to the outside. He's leaving those who assume that they're on the inside, and he's going to those on the outside in the district of Tyre and Sidon these condemned Gentile cities. And it says, Behold, a Canaanite woman comes to him 
from that region. She's crying out. She's saying, Lord, have, have mercy on me. Jesus went to where she was. He didn't just simply sit back in Galilee and expect them to come to him. Jesus got up and went. A Canaanite woman, the descendant, a great descendant of Israel's enemies, the Canaanites. And here she is, her daughter's possessed by a demon, and she comes to Jesus. Now, Jesus also is not only going to them, but he's going to them with a strategy. And you got to kind of read, keep reading in order to understand his strategy. Did you guys notice when we were reading that section, that scene, that Jesus puts this woman off three times? At first, uh, when, I, when, when, we, when we read that, our faces get a little twisted like, what is Jesus doing? She's coming to him, asking, let's just walk through it here. Jesus is, uh, the Canaanite woman is coming to Jesus to ask for help. And, uh, and he, he, he puts her off in verse 23. First silence, he gives her the silent treatment. And the disciples, they're annoyed and they say, come on Jesus, let's just, can we please send this woman away? She's an outsider. And then Jesus even says to her, he says, look, I've come to the lost sheep of Israel. Well, verse 25, it says she knelt before him. And that word knelt is a violent word. It's, 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 it's a word that, that really kind of means that she thrust herself down before him. And she cries out, Lord, help me. Verse 26, we see again, he puts her off. He says, he says uh, uh, it's not right to take the children's bread and to throw it to dogs. Now, it was very common for Jews to call Gentiles dogs in that day. Dogs were these wild animals, these ravaging animals, and so Jews were constantly, regularly calling them uh, dogs. Now, there's a slight twist here. Jesus uses a word that just doesn't simply mean the ravaging animal kind of dog, the wild dog, but rather he uses the word for puppy, so what we might call a household pet. Now, you still might say, oh, it's still kind of rough, <laughs> all right? You're trying to clean it up, Joel, a little bit, but he still called her a puppy, household pet. Well, he's testing her. Let's ju just, just be patient with Jesus, all right? Jesus never does anything that's wrong. So he, he calls her the, a puppy. And, and I think Jesus is communicating something there. He's saying you're in the house, right? And so then she actually uses Jesus' very own wording. She picks up on it a little bit. And she recognizes that he's not talking about the scavenger dogs, but he's talking about the dogs in the house. And so she says in verse 26, verse 27, she says, yes, Lord, even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Meaning even the dogs are taken care of. So if you're saying that I'm in the house then you can take care of me. And I love her faith here. I mean, she has this mindset of the, this, this approach toward Jesus saying, I would rather be a dog in the kingdom of God than to be a king and go to hell. And so Jesus, Jesus sees her faith. And in verse 28, what we recognize is that he has been testing her all along. And he says, oh woman, great is your faith. Why is he testing her? He's showing us something. I think Matthew is showing us something. We see the Pharisees who have the promises. They have the scriptures. And they are rejecting Christ. They're rejecting him. 
He's going to them and they're pushing him away. And here Jesus wants us to see that this outcast, this Canaanite woman, will not refuse or will not allow to, uh, herself to be pushed away. But she is relentless in her faith. She continues to plead, and she continues to ask, and Jesus steps back, and he says, this is the kind of faith I'm talking about. Oh, how great is your faith. Listen, as we go to the outsiders, and as we go with various strategies, we go with expectancy that there is going to be faith among the outsiders. Oh, I can't share the gospel with that person because that person is an atheist or a Muslim. Or I'm not even going to spend time with that person because they're an addict and they're just going to take advantage of me. Or whatever we might say about that outcast. Friends, listen, we go with expectancy, recognizing that it is God who instills faith. Faith is always a miracle. And here, Jesus works the miracle of faith in this woman. And she, she believes she clings to him as the son of David, as the Messiah, as her Lord, and he heals her daughter. We are on mission, family. We're on mission. We go. And this gives us an, an entire new identity as, as human beings. It wakes us up in the morning. It gets us up for our job that is otherwise maybe mundane. But we're now going to a job for a different purpose. We're going to the outcast the outsider, to the one who doesn't know Jesus Christ as their Savior and their Lord. It wakes us up with motivation. Now, no matter what stage of life you find yourself in, God has equipped you to go. Wherever you are, with whatever you have, you go. Now, you know how many married people I would hear say, you know, if I was single then I could do this for God's kingdom. You know how many single people I hear say, you know, if I was married, I could do this for God's kingdom. Sometimes it's so easy to look at another group of people and say, if I was like that, then I could really be effective. Oh, if I was a child again. Our kids say, oh, if I was an adult. If I was like that group of people, then I could really be effective. No. God has equipped you as you are right now to go to the lost, to care for the dying, to rescue the perishing. We go to them. Secondly, we care for them. We care for them. As we go to the outcast, we care for the outcast. In the year 250, from 250 AD to 270, in the Roman Empire, a terrible plague struck uh, the entire empire. 5,000 people were dying every day due to this plague. Now, Emperor Decius blamed the plague on the Christians. And this is when persecution was really taking, taking off against the Christians, against the church at the time. The plague was blamed on the Christians. Oh, you guys are the reason that there are 5,000 people dying, which didn't make any sense because Christians were dying from this plague as well. So they couldn't have cast some kind of spell on everybody. Now check this out. This is the point I'm chasing here. During these years, everyone fled the cities that were infected by the plague. 
People would begin to die. It was clear that the plague had hit our town. And everybody, now let me say this, especially the elite and the physicians, got out of the cities as quickly as possible. Do you know who stayed behind? The Christians. The Christians stayed behind. The Christians were the ones that did not leave the cities. The Christians were the ones that would sit at the bedside. The Christians would then eventually contract the plague themselves, and they would give their life caring for the outcast. Guys, this is your story. This is the kind of people that you're part of. This is our family. We're going to be celebrating through all of eternity with these Christians who died because they refused to run. This is what heaven's made of. We go to the outcast, and then when we get there, we care for the outcast. I want you to see what Jesus is doing here as he goes to the outsiders. He then moves now around the outside, the east side of Galilee. And in verse 30, what's he doing? He's healing the, li- the, the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute. He's meeting their needs. It says that he set them at, their feet, at his feet, which is the sign of he's willing to even teach them. And he did this in such a way that they glorified the God of Israel. He met needs in such a way that led them to glorify the God of Israel. Listen, God cares for those in need. God cares for those who are hurting. In Leviticus chapter 23, verse 22, even in the law, we see that way back then, God had made provision for the foreigner, provision for the outsider to come in into the field that they did not plant and to reap fruit that was not theirs to reap. It's because God cares for the outcast. He cares for the outsider. You know, one, one thing that we are trying to do here with this life coaching ministry is, is to meet real needs, to meet practical needs, to care for those who are struggling in various ways. One way that you might step up and care for the outsider is to be a mentor. Maybe through the life coaching ministry, maybe work, volunteer at the school. We prayed this morning that God would allow us to see an important part of being a Christian as that of being a provider, not merely just a consumer. Guys, Christians aren't people that just come to an event on Sunday mornings at 1030 and consume. That's not what we do. We're not professional consumers, but rather we are providers. We are a family together on mission. Yes, we come together to warm up by the fire, so to speak, so that we might be encouraged in our faith and reminded of what we believe and the mission that we're on, but then we go back out into the world to provide, to care, to meet needs. Now, we do not do this out of guilt. Guilt is a terrible motivator. Don't just simply seek to meet needs because you feel so guilty about about all that you have. 
Generally what happens when we try to meet needs out of guilt, we, we, we generally do more harm than we do good. No, but what we are to do is to take our guilt to the cross of Jesus Christ, leave it there, allow Jesus to deal with that, and then we are to begin to look at those who have needs and ask ourselves, what do they really need? And now we begin to meet those needs in such a way that that individual might glorify God. That's the goal. You know, sometimes I hear Christians say, well, you know, when I serve, I make sure not to mention Jesus' name or I make sure not to do it in the name of, of Christ or the God or the church. You know, so you're doing it in whose name? Well, I'm doing it in my name. To glorify you. No, friends, we don't serve to glorify ourselves. We serve in such a way that those would recognize that we are motivated by the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we are otherwise lost and helpless, and I would never do this on my own if it were not for Jesus Christ rescuing my soul and changing what I believe about the outcast and, and giving me a heart of compassion. We serve in such a way that would bring people to glorify God. Thirdly, so we go to them, we care for them, and we share the good news of Jesus Christ with the outsider. So Henry Martin, he went to some of the most difficult places in India and in Persia. Henry Martin left every kind of worldly comfort behind and gave his entire life sharing the gospel with the outsiders, the Christians in Rome. They gave their lives to love those who were sick and who were dying. Now they're all driven and motivated by what Aunt Ethel knows to be true, and that, that's that Jesus does not discriminate. It's that Jesus saves all kinds of people. And those who are on the outside are the very ones that I want to go to because Jesus is going to save even them. Now, before we look at this third scene, you need to know that meal culture is a big deal in the Jewish context. In Jesus' day, those who you would share a meal with, it meant something. Something more than just, we need to eat. I'm hungry. No, I'll go hungry. If it doesn't mean something. No, eating a meal with someone meant something. So in Jesus' day, eating a meal meant unity. It meant oneness. It meant family. In Jesus' day, the Jews would not eat with the Gentiles. Now, what is Jesus doing here on the east side of Galilee? What's he doing? What happens? He heals. There's all these hungry people. And he feeds them, doesn't he? Now, how many of you, when we were reading this text, thought we were rereading the, the uh, feeding of the 5,000 section? Like, we just went over this a couple weeks ago. Joel's lost his mind. Yeah. What, the feeding of the 4,000? You know, there's some scholars that have said that that's a typo, that this was added in later, that it was a mistake, and it, uh, it was a confused story. No. Jesus is very intentional. Very intentional. Don't you realize 
that the very things that Jesus is now doing among the outsiders are a repeat of what he has just done on the inside. Yes, healing the lame, the blind, the cripple. He has just simply done these things, the signs of the kingdom among Israel. And now he is performing the exact same miracles, healing, and now feeding the 4,000 to show that the kingdom of God has dawned upon the outsider. The signs of the kingdom have come to you. Now what's he doing? What he's doing is Jesus is eating a massive meal with a bunch of Gentiles. He's communicating something here, much more than just simply a miracle of feeding 4,000 plus people. But no, he's communicating so much more. He's saying something about hope for the outcast, hope for the Gentile, for the outsider. Turn with me for a moment to the book of Revelation, chapter 19. It's all the way in the back of your Bible, if you're new to the, to the Bible. Revelation chapter 19, verse 6 through 9. It says this, then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude. Now, what we know in the book of Revelation so far is that that great multitude consists of who? From every tribe, come on, help me, nation, tongue. So all kinds of people are part of this great multitude. I see this great multitude of all kinds of people, black people, white people, Asian people, Hispanic people people who grew up in poverty, people who were rich, people who were formerly addicts, people who never touched a cigarette in their entire life. All kinds of people are represented here. Language groups, minority groups, immigrants, Syrians, all kinds of people are here. I saw this great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of many peals of thunder crying out. And then this is what all these people are singing together. They're crying out, Hallelujah. For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come. And his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And then verse 9. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed, everybody say blessed. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And who is it that's invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb? Well, it's the great multitude. All kinds of people. Every tribe, every tongue, every nation eating together at this great wedding ceremony, this reception, this marriage supper of the Lamb. So what's going on? Let's flip back to Matthew chapter 15. So we have seen the 5,000, the feeding of the 5,000, 12 baskets left over. That represents Israel. That means Israel will be represented at this marriage supper of the Lamb. But here we see 4,000. He's not only eating with this great multitude over here, but he's eating with a great multitude over here. 
seven baskets left over, the universal number, meaning all kinds of people from all over the globe are going to be represented at this meal. This includes the Canaanite woman. We're going to eat with her one day. This includes those from Tyre and, and, and Sidon. This includes those living east of the Galilee. This includes those who are, who are former atheists, who fell on their knees and humbled themselves before God. It includes those who were struggling with addiction and in their brokenness fell before Jesus and said, I don't have anything left. I need you. It includes those who are the emotional outcasts, struggling with mental illness. It includes those who are the societal outcasts, the prostitutes and the gangbangers and the hustlers. It includes those who are uh, among the minority groups, immigrants, language groups, just struggling to make it by, who find that God in Christ accepts them. And it includes all of the geographical outcasts from all over the globe, all over the world, eating together. All kinds of people are represented. It includes you. It includes you. Listen, the very best way for you to understand and have a heart and have compassion for the outcast is to recognize that you were an outcast. You were an outcast. You were on the outside of the room, not on the inside. You are outside of the camp, not inside of the camp. And God of very God, light of very light, came into the world. From the inside came out to us, outside of the camp, where it's unclean and where it's dirty. Where we were, he came to us. And the whole was then broken so that the broken might be made whole. Christ became an outcast so the outcast might come in. Because of your sin, you are outside of the family of God. Jesus hung on the cross for your sin died in your place, took the penalty that you deserve in his own being. He bore the curse for you. He died. He rose from the dead. And he looks across that great divide and he says, all who turn from their sin, all who repent and trust in me, I will save you. I will bring you in. I will give you new life. And you turn and you have repented and you have confessed him as your Lord and you have faith. Faith in and of itself is not something that you intrinsically have. It's something God does in you. It's a gift that God gives to you. He gave you faith. He opened your eyes so that you might see the glory of the salvation within Jesus Christ. And you who were formerly an outcast were brought into the kingdom of God. Are you, are you a Pharisee or are you like the Canaanite woman? Are you a Pharisee, meaning you just simply assume that you're in? Because you go to church every Sunday, 
because you were brought up in a Christian home, because you try to say your prayers in the morning. You just simply assume that you're on the inside. You assume it, even though nothing in your life looks like Jesus Christ. You love your sin. You cling to your flesh, but you just assume that you're on the inside. Or, friends, are you like the Canaanite woman who recognizes that he is my only hope and I will not take no for an answer and I'm pleading with him, please save me. I'm on the outside. I need help. And you are the son of David. You are the Messiah. You are Lord. Friends, plead with him. Cry out to the, Has there ever been a time where you've cried out to him and said, God, I'm on the outside. I need to come in. And Christ is the only hope that I have. His death and his resurrection is all that I have to boast in. And without that, I have nothing. God, save me, friends. I guarantee you that Jesus will not turn you away. Well, how great is your faith. Yes, when we understand that we were on the outside and that Jesus gave all so that we might come in, our heart of compassion swells for those who are the, are the outcast, and we, we go to them. We care for them, and we share the gospel with them. This good news that sinners can come in. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time that we can be in your word, and we ask that you would give us a heart of compassion for those who are the outcast. Let us see, God, how we were on the outside and how gracious you were in saving us and bringing us to Jesus Christ. May we live lives of true repentance and faith, marks of true discipleship of Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.